Noah, what is the key insight? Hexapodia is the key insight. Six feet. And what is that supposed to mean? That there is often some key nugget of fact that if you understand it correctly and place it in its proper context, will transform your view of the situation, allowing you to grok it completely. And in the context of Werner Vinge's amazing, mind-bending science fiction space opera novel, Fire Upon the Deep. The importance of Hexapodia is... Is that those sapient bushes riding around on six-wheeled scooters have been... Genetically programmed to be a fifth column of spies and agents for the great evil. Today, however, here we seek different key insights than Hexapodia. And Brad, what are our key insights today? I think our key insights today are that from the perspective of practically every economist, um, we feel like the economy is doing amazingly, remarkably well, much better than we expected it would do coming out of the plague depression and quite, quite good, quite good, even without taking account of the fact that we're coming out of a situation in which things were quite horrible and quite complicated. And yet the people of America do not seem to agree. The people of America seem to think that the economy is pretty lousy and are pretty unhappy as a result. And we would like to figure out why this is so. Yes. And uh, and there are many hypotheses and many arguments about this. And there may be problems here because both of us are still, I think, somewhat jet lagged since Noah has just gotten back from Japan and I have just gotten back from Australia which is a heartbreaking country for an America to visit. Um, because their senses of humor are so bad? Well, their sense of humor is absolutely awful, yes. And yes, Australia is filled with extremely smart creatures that are incredibly toxic and can poison you, and also extremely large creatures that can come eight foot out of a muddy pool of water and eat you at a moment's notice. Those are the Australians themselves, right? Well, the Australians themselves, but mostly Australia is a friendly English-speaking country with a relatively high degree of income inequality and a lot of social mateship in which people regard each other overwhelmingly as partners, friends, communicators, and allies in the game of life, and is a picture of what American society almost was and could be. Um, if only we would manage to get our act together. In some ways, they had, yes. um, yeah, they, they have a natural resource-based economy, they do. Um, they do. which it's good that we don't have that. They do. Um, they, do. they do. And it's and they also had racist immigration policies for longer than we did. They did. They did. They did. Yes. Um, but they're doing pretty well now. If 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 we could copy one policy from Australia, what would we copy? What would that be? I would Wait say their union. I would say their union movement, right? Their union movement, mm. which is very pro productivity and also very effective um, at actually curbing um, the rapacity of the CEO class. Got it. Um, also, gun control. Also, gun control. Yes. Um, all right. So we'll uh, we'll we'll have more episodes about that later. Maybe we could have an episode about you know Australia and bring in John Quiggin. Um, yeah, that would be fun. Or some, or or Justin Wolfers, we could bring in Justin Wolfers. We should, we should bring in both John Quiggan and Justin Wolfers. Since they Australian both, Roundtable, since they all love Australia, and I think profoundly disagree on why it's lovable. Um, that would be an amazing episode, and I could say, you know what, both you guys are wrong. We're going to nuke Australia and give it back to the kangaroos. No, kangaroos are cute. 
Do you know that they kangaroos, are. they have to frantically lick their front paws with their tongues during the day because they can't sweat? I did not know that, despite having been to a kangaroo farm, learned and about so kangaroos and so as a result, for a kangaroo to survive in Australia requires this clutch to keep it cool from it doesn't cook itself internally. Amazing. As a Which is why we need to creature. relocate the kangaroos to Washington State. Okay. Or Tasmania. Tasmania, they do fine. Or Tasmania. And you have not talked about how Japan is the greatest place on Earth yet this episode. I haven't. And, and you know, Japan isn't the greatest place on Earth. It's it's no. one great place among many. Yes. Um, but it is it is notable how much it is hitting hard times right now. I could not escape the feeling that uh, Japan has gotten poorer and shabbier over the last um, decade. Really? And it's part not of that, that you've gotten older and have more aches and pains. <laughs> In fact, no, I, uh, oh. I, I, I've rarely been as active or, um, you know, I, I didn't even get a chance to work that much um, and people were annoyed because I was reposting sort of, uh, you know, reruns on my blog for part of that. And, right. um, and uh, I rarely have gotten a chance to go out so much, but you know, um, like I might be a little too old to, to, you know, go dancey dance, but then all my favorite clubs closed down in the pandemic and I'm, uh, I'm pretty sad. Right. And a lot of my favorite art galleries closed down in the pandemic. Uh -huh. And so some of this is just that a lot of Japan's best stuff closed during the pandemic. Right. Um, so that's part of it. Part of it is capital depreciation. You know, they built so much stuff that keeping it all looking like new is actually extremely difficult. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, Japan has probably passed the golden rule level of capital in the solo model. Yes. Um, and then well, they but, need uh, to immigrate. They need to get a lot more immigrants. They need a lot more immigrants, but, um, you know, they, they've opened themselves up to immigration a lot. You know, Tokyo is yeah. a recognizably international city in a way that it was not uh, yeah. 10 years ago when they opened it up to immigration. Right. Like it is just, you know, you see every every store will just have, a, you know, a, um, an Indian person or a white person or whoever or a black person just working at the store. You yeah. know, it's just uh, working at some random convenience store or restaurant or shop. Um, it's just really noticeable how international it is now. You hear all these languages spoken on the street and not okay. just from tourists either. Some pretty impressive that they've done that um shinzo abe sent and and his and his uh you know uh kuroda haruhiko at the at the bank of japan sent everyone in japan to work everyone in japan to work yeah okay. so when japanese people ran down sort of the wealth the the you know the wealth that they had accumulated in like the 80s or whatever everyone went to work and the government really encouraged everyone to go to work and so now everyone just works these 60 hour weeks at low productivity jobs which is uh. you know it's good for the economy on paper, but in practice, what it means is no one has time to hang out and everybody just seems exhausted all the time, especially uh -huh. in the summer heat. So, okay. All right. All right. No. So a anyway, summer heat and a truly full employment economy and a still workaholic culture. Uh, yes. Yes. The workaholic culture is changing. Mm -hmm. um, it's just the low productivity. That's the problem. You know, when you have, you can, when you, uh, when you get rid of workaholism, you know, people may not like having to work, but then the wages are so low that they still have to work a lot, you know, to afford the standard of living, you know, that they expect. Um, and so it's very difficult. Um, anyway, we should have an entire other episode on Japan. In fact, we can make that our next episode. Okay. But today, let's talk about U.S. consumers and voters and why they're down in the dumps about what seems to be such a great economy. Well, you know, Barry, I can bet. 
um, Barry Eichengreen's bet is that people think inflation is still going on and that inflation makes people uneasy, unhappy, disappointed, cheated. Right? That they see their income and they remember what prices are supposed to be. And so they make their plans and they go out and they try to buy stuff. And then they find they're 8% short and they get angry because the government has broken its contract with them to manage the economy so as not to have them disappointed. And so they think the inflation has done this to us and Biden has not controlled inflation. And then the question is, will the people recognize that Biden and Powell have controlled inflation, given that we live in a social media bubble hellscape? in which an awful lot of people will lie and say not just is not just is inflation still roaring forward but we're also in a recession even though they know that it isn't true and barry regards this as a you know as a near run thing as it's the train is coming down the track and simon whiplash snidely whiplash has tied little nell to the tracks and dudley do right will dudley do right and the horse whose name i forget get there in time um, in Dudley do right in the mountains to untie untie little now so everything can end happily. Wait, okay. Can you can you back up and explain to yes. me? I know I know this is supposed to be the podcast where you don't explain anything, but yes. can you explain the Dudley do right metaphor here? Because oh, I missed that oh, entirely. Oh, oh, you are you are not a fan of Bullwinkle and Friends. I know Dudley do right. I know Snidely Whiplash. Yes. I know I I've seen Rocky and Bullwinkle. You know, yes. I have a boomer dad. He made me watch it. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Um and so uh, the question is, um, uh, the question is, if Bullwinkle J. Moose is a moose yes. and Rocket J. Uh, squirrel. Ro squirrel is a, is squirrel. a squirrel, yes. is Rocky Raccoon from the Beatles song a raccoon? I would hope that Rocky Raccoon is a raccoon and also that Rocket Raccoon from Guardians of the Galaxy is a real raccoon. Right. Um, but am... Rocky Raccoon of, of the Beatles song, like he's an anthropomorphized raccoon, not just a guy who happens to have the last name raccoon. We believe so. OK, that just wanted to check on that because that's kind of important. Um, but then back to consumer confidence. Barry Eichengreen is, of course, a brilliant guy who has seen this happen a lot. Right. Um, there are some other. So 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 I think that that's probably right. So if you look at when inflation really started to come down, it started to come down about a year ago yes and so we're just now reaching the point where year over year inflation numbers are starting to look low yes and a lot of that was the oil price collapse yes and um some of that i believe was interest rate hikes because you know i i know you believe in in these long well, lags for interest rate hikes and i kind of believe in in six month lags well that this is all one of the puzzles, and this is a puzzle place where Jamie Galbraith is tying himself up in confusion um, right now. But, you know, there's inflation began to fall before the interest rate hikes had a chance to work to cool off inflation. Of course. But if we hadn't had the interest rate hikes, then inflation would have started rising again because we would still have had an extremely, extremely tight labor market. And that would have managed to actually push a wage pressure inflation burst, which we actually did not have. Right. Um, I also think there's probably a role for wealth effects here. Yes. You there's know, a role um, for wealth effects and for liquid. 
things. Where's crypt- crypto just sort of like imploded and, uh, you know, as a result of rate hikes. And then mm-hmm. you had, um, you know, the massive tech, tech stock crash that started in end of 2021. Well, um, people are mostly do not, their margin of propensity to consume out of wealth is not that high. Um, but yes, the government shoveled a lot of money into people's bank accounts. Housing prices were high. People thought about using their houses at ATMs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and those things are all cooling off now. And so we actually do have hopes of managing to attain, you know, a soft landing. Right. But I think I I, I think if you look at when consumer confidence rose in the Reagan years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I looked at the timing of the Morning in America ad. Yes. And the Morning in America ad was incredibly well timed. Um, it, it probably followed the numbers instead of causing them. You yes. know, like um, consumer confidence started to rise in 1983. Mm-hmm. And by 1984, it was incredibly robust. You saw this massive increase in optimism. Right. Um, not a lot happened in those years. No. It was infl- not very contemporaneous. Inflation stayed at 4% after coming down to 4% in 1980, early 1983. Right. And, and rates remained fairly high at 9%. Remained high. And, you know, unemployment did not fall that rapidly, although there were some quarters of barn-busting output growth. Um, right. And so I think that, you know, getting a couple years of, of falling inflation solidifies it in people's minds. Yeah. And at the moment, we have only six months of falling inflation. That well, is- I would say I would say 12 months. Yeah, but Mike Consul can say that the three to six month super core and other measures look absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you know, right, yeah. right. I would, but I, I would say headline, which you know, people care about headline inflation. If you, people if you do. look at political attitudes, gas prices have to have their own extra term in the regression because people care about them so much more, even than other forms of inflation. But core and super core are very good guides to what inflation is going to be over the next six to twelve months. Correct. And so, so if you look at behaving make us think that over the next year unless you believe in the social media unless you believe in the social media sorcerer um that it's going to percolate through that you know inflation is now effectively gone away and look we all have jobs right Um, yes so so the the dominant hypothesis here has to be just wait wait a year you know not everyone is is just plugged into the latest numbers like we are. You know, it'll take a while for this to filter through people's, you know, consciousness. Now, counter hypothesis one is that real wages have been falling um, over the past three years. And that because real wages have been falling, it's not inflation. It's just that people are noticing that they're not, that their wages really aren't keeping up with inflation. Um, And that that makes nobody happy. Well, let me so so this is one thing. And, you know, this is this is I do believe that that was one thing that made people really unhappy when wages fell for about a year and a half. Right. Uh, from the beginning of 2021 through the middle of 2022, real wages fell mm-hmm. um, and people were upset about that. However, however, there's a couple facts here, maybe three facts. One is that uh, one reason real wages fell was that they had what was um a composition effect from the labor market because real wages soared in yes. the um no, th- this is does not explain all of it you explains only your job during the plague, your real wages were likely to be high exactly and so you see this massive spike during the pandemic um but you know if you control for people who never got unemployed it's going to be less dramatic 
Um, and so, so that's one, that's one point. A second point is that, um, is that it, when you, when you disaggregate and you look at real wages for production and non-supervisory workers, mm -hmm. they, uh, have, have, they fell much less during the falling period right. and have risen much less, much more since then. And basically that's, that's about 75% of workers. Yes. And so while the upper middle class, you know, management class, whatever has taken a bit of a bath, um, the the average American has actually seen their real wages grow at about the pre-pandemic trend. So if you know, Dubey did this um, did this exercise. We should have him back on. But he did this exercise this morning on Twitter where he basically drew a post-pandemic line and said, "Look, real wages for production non-supervisory workers are exactly at trend. They're where they should be in mm -hmm. the pre-pandemic trend, assuming that rate of linear growth." Right. And that's good because that was a pretty robust rate of linear growth we had back in the uh, late. Very, late very 2010s. nice. To, yeah, that was, was great. Very, very nice to see right? that Donald Trump, through sheer luck alone, managed to get a high pressure economy. And that indeed paid off um, for the incomes of real live people. And it really that, did. And that's been continuing. And so, so there's, there's those things. And the, the second thing is that real wages for everybody have, have started to go up over the last year over since inflation fell. Th this is, this is strongly supportive, by the way, of the sticky, um, the sticky, uh, upward, yes. um, or, or sticky, just, just generally sticky, it's just sticky. nominal wages, sticky yeah. nominal wages. It's stick. It's like, it's like, yeah. Um, yeah. What, yeah, it's it's sticky. Mm -hmm. It's wages don't want to change much. So when you have, you know, economists like to think in terms of real wages, but when you have um when you have inflation suddenly go up, wages do not suddenly just compensate. Uh they take a, a, a while, they take years to sort of compensate for that. And so you get these these big decreases in purchasing power, and when inflation then drops back down, suddenly real purchasing power starts going up. It's just weight inflation moving around a lot plus wages being really sticky. Yes. Now we have, but there's also the flip side of that, is that the upper middle class is the shouting class, you know, yes. and the influencer class. Yes, they are. And right now they, they are. are feeling not just that the plutocrats are outmaneuvering them, which they are, but you know, the sun also rises usually in the east most mornings. <laughs> and, you know, they're not just thinking that this may be their time. This will be their. This will be unusually the time for some of them to go into the Schumpeterian creative destruction barrel um, as white collar work reconfigures itself around modern machine learning and other similar technologies. But also they are faced with the enormous status insult that they have to pay their house cleaner a lot more while their wages are not going up. And that's fueling some of the social media shouting class. You know, Biden is not performing for us, um, right? which is a potential danger in the public sphere, even if not something we economists um, look, you know, slant, look, look sideways, side, side eye of that. Right? Um, and, you yes. know, there is an awful lot of confusion. Like, you know, Michael Strain of the, who I sometimes say is the last honest person left at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, and yet- One of two, know, Jim Petakoukas. Jim Pet. okay. Honestly. Well, all right, I'll grant you that. Um, 
is out there saying that underlying inflation is still double the Fed's target, target, and that financial conditions aren't tightening as much as they need to, and so the Fed should continue to raise rates, which disturbs me greatly because I do not see the empirical basis for such a judgment at all. Um, and I also had something come across, you know, I mean, Basically, you know, Hayekians who have worked for central banks in other countries talking about distorted incentives and massive inherited imbalances. Um, you know, the old line that populist governance and central bank interventionism in the past, you know, that we have sinned against them and we must expiate those sins by having a recession right now, by having higher interest rates to create it. I think that's called sadomonitorism. Well, sadomonitorism is one, yes. Um, right. Does this mean I'm going to have to agree with the MMT people now? We have to agree with the MMT people now. No. Except unless they go into Jamie Galbraith land and start not just for cutting interest rates, but also for expansion, for more expansionary fiscal policy than we have. Which now. is their main thing that they want, is expansionary fiscal policy. Well, yeah, but... No, they only want low rates because it allows more expansionary wanted, fiscal policy. But they wanted expansionary fiscal policy in times when inflation was below target. MMT people are supposed to want budget surpluses in times when inflation is above target. Yeah. You look skeptical. Because they're not really, these are not, despite the fact that you want to see the MMT people as functional finance people. They do. They're not. They do. They're right? not. They are. The MMT people are a one way, are a fixed vector pointing toward more deficits. All they, they want, they do not see fiscal policy as a finely tuned method of controlling the economy. They see fiscal policy as, as, the, as just shouting more over and over again. But Abba Lerner's functional finance was a smart thing to say. Well, it was, but but and if but, they are Avif Lerner fiscal mm, functional finance people, then they can be smart, and that's a happy thing to do. That makes you feel good about yourself. <laughs> no? So we love the MMT people to turn into Lernarians, okay. <laughs> but I'm not sure it's going to happen. Okay, so so we've talked about inflation, right. we've talked about real wages. Mm -hmm. Um, let's talk about one more hypothesis that I've seen going around. Which is uh, which is before we get on to the, the vibes and the politics and all the other, you know, sort of like God in the gaps theories here, um, okay. the, the Rick Perlstein theories, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about interest rates. So yes. um, there was a there was a, a, a fellow I know who goes by the name of Quantian wow. um, online, yes. whom I still owe an expensive dinner related to a bet that we made in 2016. Or no, I'm sorry, bet we made in 2019. How expensive a dinner? Uh, let's not talk about that right now. Um, Why do I only get a pizza. Whereas you only get a pizza. Well, that's got a pizza. You got to start. You got to, you got to wait till my income grows and then bet me, you know, once I can afford a bit more. But, um, also, also that, that bet was a bit of a joke since I knew you were going to win and just wanted to arbitrage it. Yes. Whereas okay. the, the bet with him is actually me hedging my idiosyncratic risk. So what happened was I bet him that Bernie would win the democratic nomination which yes. I thought would be a disaster uh, in 2020 because I thought Trump would then win. Because you'd get a good dinner. Yes, exactly. So I was hedging my risk by by betting this, but now I owe Quantian dinner. And just so you have an idea, it's at Niku Steakhouse in San Francisco. Oh, that so, would be fun. Yeah. 
that will but, be fun. And he gets to order again, wine. And that's that's the really expensive part is that he gets to order wine. So He's, I'm looking at Quantian right now, and I see him talking about the molar gas constant. Um, the kind of PV equals NRT um, and assorted other things. I don't see what you're talking about. What are you well, talking let about? Me, let me send it to you. I should have sent this to you uh, ahead of time. Um, uh, no, no, no. There is a sense in which one should do, one should adopt for podcasts the um, formula adopted by the Accidental Tech Podcast which is that no one is allowed to do any research at all beforehand. I just assumed you'd seen it. Um, yes. Check out the, uh, well, cause I, cause I blogged about it. And of course everyone religiously reads my blog every morning. Um, check out the link I just sent in the chat and you'll see his thread. Okay. I will check out the link and lo and behold. Um, ah, why do people think the economy is bad? And the answer is funny and will make people mad. It did not make me mad, and it is a plausible answer, but I think that... nine variables really want low levels of inflation, late COVID. Um, consumers care a lot, and consumers now hate high interest rates. Um, that that you can no longer finance your car at 0% interest rates. And if you're trying to buy a house right now, you're in real trouble because you have to pay relatively high real interest rates. And there is virtually no supply of existing houses on the market because no one wants to give up their low interest rate you know, mortgage. Yeah. Right. And so, so basically his idea, so, so the short version is that you, if you're listening to this podcast, you can't see the econometrics involved, and I don't believe the econometrics here. Well, one should never believe any time series econometrics. But especially not one that's on a serially correlated time yes. series with serially correlated regressors yes. with entirely contemporaneous, uh, nine entirely contemporaneous, yes. serially correlated explanatory variables with no lags or interaction terms. Yes, that you what you do is you are creating a you are creating a space in which what you're trying to fit is you're trying to fit a relatively smooth line in or as a point in however many dimensions as you have observations. And you know, you have nine other vectors in that space, and you can come remarkably close to fitting anything um, with that. That the general rule of time series econometrics is that R squareds are very high and out of sample predictions are absolutely awful. Um, yeah, I don't believe it. I think that high interest rates are a downer um, for people who want to you know, buy things and borrow to pay for them. Um, but, you know, I also don't believe they're that huge they're that huge here are here are reasons why i had to doubt why high interest rates are really the the you know big explanation here mm -hmm. um i think that high interest rates are, are are a thing they're a contributing factor but if you look at you know the idea why americans would hate high interest rates you know mortgage right. rates are are maybe like a half a point higher than they were back in like the housing bubble years of the mid 2000s yeah but in the housing bubble year you could expect to hit 
10% for your housing price appreciation. So the that's true. That bad. Right. Then that's a good point. But in terms of, of background debt, like how indebted people are. The, so, so Kwanian's th- uh, thesis was basically that Americans are very highly levered yes. and um, Americans are not very highly levered. America like leverage household leverage has dropped to about 73% of GDP uh-huh. uh, from a high of around hundred um, percent. And then it is at about the same level as like maybe like late nineties, you know, early two thousands. It's not a very high level of debt. Uh, and most of the debt that people have was taken is is fixed interest rate debt taken out during the period of extremely low interest rates. So how, debt servicing costs of of the debt people already have is like nothing. So in yeah. terms of of total debt, you know, of course people would like to take on a mortgage, but in terms of how much that would actually cost, the yeah. background debt they have is not that big. Right. And so so I'm not. That's not super convincing. That sort of interpretation. Um, you know, so 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 Americans, yeah, they're just not that they're just not that over leveraged, honestly. And the mortgage rates are like a little bit high, but not that high. And there's not obviously any reason why Americans would care so much more about high mortgage rates than they did in, say, the 1980s. Right, 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 right. Um, except you can say that if it's not mortgage rates, but rather the change from what people expect normal mortgage rates to be. That's yeah. right. Anchored expectations. That's a dodge. That's a dodge that's a little bit too easy. It's a Miles Kimball uh, idea. Yes. Okay. Um, the, the idea that happiness is literally just the deviation of reality from expectation. Right. Um, so far, it seems that we are in perhaps inflation's, you know, ebbing has not yet made its way into the minds of people. When they answer pollsters, right. so so basically they, they haven't had time. Yeah, and and I would I would say that because wages are because nominal wages are sticky, I would say that the inflation ebbing and the real wage rising thing are actually the same thing. Those are the well, you know okay. it's uh, Pam from the office saying those are the same picture, and they are because if wages can't if nominal wages can't move then real wages are determined by inflation so base and it's all just purchasing power it's all just how many eggs and how many you know gallons of milk you can afford right. when you go to the grocery store and all about that and so i would say that that's the that's our chief hypothesis is just give it time you know give it time and i'd say that there's also the hypothesis that that more difficult mortgage borrowing is a thing and that not until rates actually w- when you look at the morning in america ad in 84 Yes, rates were still pretty high, but they had come down quite a bit since the peak. And um, that may, you know, suddenly it was it was still hard to buy a house, but it was suddenly a little less hard to buy a house than it had been. So we could think about the change in, in rates. And so we could say that, OK, once rates start to come down in the current episode, once the Fed starts cutting again, we're going to see consumer confidence shoot up, whether right. that's tw- currently markets are pricing in cuts in early 2024. Mm-hmm. So we might be one year. So so 2024 might be similar to 1983 in terms of the the, you know, the the progress of the inflation interest rate cycle. Right. Uh, the, and um, and if so, that's good news for Biden, because while morning in America was an especially high period of confidence, uh, 1983 was also pretty good. Yeah. That it's was when things likely really that 2024 will be, if not morning in america 
Isn't it from a early dawn? confident standpoint. At least dawn in America, pre-dawn in America. Pre-dawn. Let's call it pre-dawn in America. It will be, if not morning, a crepuscular pre-dawn. Damn. Crepuscular. Rabbits are a crepuscular animal. Do you know that? They, uh, they're they active in the, in the dawn and dusk. Period. I hope so. The problem is that dogs are also active in the dawn or dusk. So I don't know what the rabbits have gained by moving from being animals that are active when they can see to animals when they can't see. That's because dogs have better eyes than rabbits. Well, it allows rabbits to not overheat during the day. But that's another um, important thing for a fur animal. Yes. And they but, can lick their paws like kangaroos to cool themselves off. Right. Okay. For pets, however, it is important for your pets to be able to play with your other pets. So it's good that dogs, cats, and rabbits are all kind of crepuscular and mm-hmm. that they can all play together and be happy. Yes. Um, except that my wife is horrified by what the dogs do after dinner. Right. Yes, fair enough. Uh, it has been snoozing for five hours in the afternoon. Yeah. Suddenly <clears throat> turns into dog on speed or dog on meth or whatever. Oh, the- yes. So you have a border collie. Um, we do not have a border collie. We have other dogs. Border collies are the most meth doing dogs of all dogs. Like they're just like they run, they run, run, run. That's all they yes, think. We actually oh, got to no. see some working border collies in Australia. Oh wow, that's yeah. cool. Wait, what's fighting. the border? Is it the border between Scotland and England? It was the border between Scotland and England, but these dogs have been moved to Australia. Shouldn't they be using Australian shepherds? Isn't that what they're they supposed to use? Australian shepherds too, but apparently they said their Australian shepherds were they were giving them a break today and using their border collies. <laughs> Amazing. That's great. Well, my my dad's dog is half Australian shepherd and half border collie and they're both just extremely highly active, but also very cute. Okay. Um, all right. So on back from back to the ideas of, you know, why are people so pissed about the economy? We've yep. covered inflation slash real wages. We've covered interest rates. Let's talk about vibes. We Everybody loves vibes. Rick Perlstein country or right. Yes. Rick Perlstein or Perlstein, I believe. Um, uh, he, he believes that the Does a lot of the unhappiness. Pardon? Does he even and his name? Uh, no. P-E-R-L. Okay. S-T-E-I-N. Okay. All right. Yeah. And I, I I believe it is it is Pearl Stein, given the you never know with these Steins and Steins. I think it depends on where you came from in uh, in Middle Europe. Right. Um but more to the point, he believes that a lot of the of the anger and unhappiness that people felt in the 1970s was due not to um inflation necessarily but due to social upheaval Even the social if... upheaval that reached its most intense point in the late 60s right and beginning of like you know maybe 1968 through 1971 was really the peak of unrest in america mm-hmm. but you know we there was this there was this feeling that things were unsettled that you know crime was still super high and um and you know there was this there's still this lingering feeling that there would still be a revolution in America. You know, we lost the Vietnam war and there were a lot of anger about that. There was Watergate. There was, you know, like just this, this lingering feeling of just that there was unrest. 1976 had this little unrest bubble. 
leftists tried to shoot Gerald Ford twice within the space of a month. You had the Symbionese Liberation Army. You had all this crazy hey, stuff Patty in 1976. Hurst. Patty Hearst. And so... Um, and so, so this social upheaval, right, which is right. half blacks and women are forgetting their place and half things are very insecure and unsafe. Um, Could be. I mean, I think that the, the idea of people forgetting their place or whatever had been that was that was sort of already firmly in, in you know, the 70s wokeness was a, a far more, um, you know, it was less institutionalized then, but it was far fiercer than it yeah. is now. Yes. Mm hmm. Um, you know, like 70s, 70s feminists would absolutely just kick the crap out of, you know, today's feminists. There were just, I suppose, fewer of them and they were less likely to be deans. Yes. OK. No. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so there was all kinds of social upheaval and unrest. Um, but liberals, were, you know, you know, obviously people on the right were mad because, uh, you know, all these all these liberals forgetting their place and women and black people forgetting their place or whatever. Um, but also, you know. Liberals are mad because they yeah, a lot of people had expected sort of a policy they... revolution that we didn't end up getting. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, we got out of Vietnam eventually, but it was Nixon who did it. So it doesn't count. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, we didn't get the the we got the great society, but we didn't get the like the the Equal Rights Amendment. We didn't get the um, a lot of the stuff that the the Congress that came in in 1974 after Watergate wanted ended up yeah. not happening we didn't right. get the robust welfare state they wanted blah 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 and yeah. now there were at the state level there were conservative revolts you know uh against taxes etc um and so i think that a lot of the in the late 70s you also had the left being very disillusioned right disappointed while the right was still mad about what happened in the 60s and the early 70s i think that the left was disillusioned about what was happening in the late middle and late 70s mm -hmm. um, and everyone was sort of mad and here comes inflation you know, here comes this this problem, this economic problem that people don't like under any circumstances, maybe. But then maybe people just got really, really upset about it because it was some concrete thing you could hold on to, you know, like like rice aroni costs more. Yes. OK. You know, or whatever it was that like Ronald Reagan said cost him so much during that time, even though he was already rich. But uh, yeah. like it, he just made everything up. <laughs> but but, you know, rice aroni costs more. And um, and it, it was a concrete thing you could fixate on. And whether you were on the left or on the right, you could you could explain your sort of disillusion with the 70s. Uh, your anger at the 70s in terms of anger at this concrete thing of inflation. And maybe we're in a similar period now. We had um, the upheaval of the 20 of the mid and late 2010s, mm -hmm. you know, seven or eight years of upheaval. Uh um, we had, you know, Gamergate, which was, of course, the most important event of that upheaval. No, we had um, we all these things, you know, BLM and Me Too and all these blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, we had the Floyd protests and riots and we had the January 6th coup attempt and things like that. And um, that just, you know, there was a lot of unrest. And I think people aren't I do think that has peaked. It could restart again. There could be a, a, a resurgence of unrest in, in 2024 or 2025 if there's election shenanigans, blah, blah, blah. But I think that we've essentially we've seen the peak of yeah. this era of unrest. And I think people haven't realized it yet. They're disillusioned. They're strung out. Liberals are mad because things didn't go as far as they wanted. Conservatives are mad because things went way farther than they wanted. And um, and everybody's sort of mad. And maybe they're just taking it out on the economy. Mm hmm. Now, is this Rick Perlstein's theory, or is this our theory riffing off of our very, very strong belief that Rick Perlstein's books are great? 
Well, it's both because it's both. I, it, you know, Rick Perlstein talks about this for the 70s. And yeah. I, I talked to him briefly on X, the everything app back when it was Twitter. Yes. Um, I talked to him about this. Don't call it the everything app. I it's can't X, the everything app. I no, can't and, pay for anything with it. It won't help me search for intelligently for anything. It I know, but you can you can complain about everything. It won't write my papers for me or at least draw my empirical analyses for me. Yes, but all what Americans really like, Brad, is to complain about things, and that's all we really need. Mm-hmm. Paying for things is for Chinese people and right. you know, whoever else has payment apps that work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like complaining about things is for Americans. Americans don't consume goods. Remember, millennials don't consume goods, they consume experiences. And the experience they consume is fighting each other angrily on the internet. Right. Well, that is, that's what we do. That's what the shouting class does. That's what the shouting class does. X the everything app. And and it's no longer tweets. It's it's well, it says it's called posts. You know, you can repost, but really we know in our heart of hearts it's excretions. It's sheeting. You're sheeting. Excretions. Spelled X E E T. Excretions. X Yes. Excretions. I love it. I love it so much. I love the name X. I love the icon. Yeah. I, you know, I was I was unhappy with the rate limitation and a lot of the other things Elon did and the stupid, you know, pay for blue checks. But I love X, the everything app. I'm back to being an Elon stan here. Now, someone has now to explain to me why every single Tesla battery hasn't caught on fire and exploded by now. Um, well, my friend Sam D'Amigo can explain exactly why. But the answer is that they're actually the batteries are pretty good because they're real engineers. Yeah. Yeah, they're real engineers. OK. Um, um yeah, no, I mean like what think, yeah. So I suppose our guess is that you know, um what do you think about vibes, Brad? What do you think about the vibe session? Kyla Scanlon. Uh, yeah. Well, Kyla Scanlon's vibe session, right? Kyla Scanlon's vibe session was more you know. Um, had a material basis, right? Did the building blocks of inequality, lack of ownership of land or a home, you know, lack of community, you know, that soft and hard data have diverged wildly, um, was her view precisely because inequality, lack of ownership, lack of community, and so forth. And that's a much broader thing than simply a 1970s-like wave of pessimism about America. Um, I would say that if they would say that we have to say that we very much hope um, and guess that the vibe session has peaked, um, but we worry that Kyla Scanlon may be right in thinking yeah it has deeper roots yes this um, is a how would we measure it more unequal society how would we measure it than we had in the 1970s right okay um Yeah, how how would we measure that? Let me double down on the economist kind of things, right? That you know, um, 
Starting in 1996, it was. After 1996, you know, whatever Paul Krugman thought about an issue was a fairly sophisticated center-left economist take on that issue. And practically every time, Paul Krugman has been right. Um, and so I now think that kind of a center-left, pretty mainstream economist's take on an issue is highly likely to be the correct one. And people who say that crypto is really a new financial system or that, you know, America has huge numbers of zero marginal product workers um, or that derivatives are the greatest thing since sliced bread or that our CEOs are earning their pay or that you know, Donald Trump's tax cuts will pay for themselves, you know, or what was it, the Cochrane Barrow Boskin claim that the Trump tax cut was going to boost America's steady state capital intensity by 40%. Um, all of those are wrong in all probability, and we are likely to simply get the future right um, by going back to the, you know, um, orthodox center-left economist points that inflation's ebbing has not yet made its way into the minds of people when they answer pollsters, but it is going to, um, that lagging real income simply is not a thing, at least not for potentially important swing voters, and that more difficult mortgage borrowing and positive interest payments and car loans are a thing, but are unlikely to be a big thing. Um, so I'm going to say that's my, you know, key insight. Um, that trust the center-left economists like Paul Krugman. And I think that's a, that's a powerful message, and I think it can be uh, encapsulated in yep. the phrase normie libs stay winning uh okay normie and libs just continue to win and win and win normie libs win okay normie well, libs win um but then you find yourself on the app that's no longer twitter trolling various people to your left this morning precisely about things like industrial policy and unions and the future of the american economy and so forth Yes, and eventually they will yell and yell and yell at me, and eventually they will listen to me, and they will say that they thought this all along, and they will uh, get it right. Okay, I'd say the different the you secret of the normie libs is not that they were born on third base. The secret is that you know they watch where the ball is going and aim their bat there. Skate to where the puck is going to be. They skate to where the puck. They run to where the ball is going to be. They. You know, they lead the target with the machine gun. Whatever metaphor you want, they change their minds about things sometimes, which practically no one else ever does. Oh, okay. Um, um and hmm. then and they they're you know, that's their great strength is that they occasionally change their minds on things. Um, the great strength the of who exactly? Normie Libs. Normie Libs. All right. Yeah. The, the the fact that when Paul Krugman thinks I might have been wrong about something, right. he just types out the words, I guess I was wrong about this. And yeah. who else does that? No one else does that. You don't see AI people doing that. You no. don't see, you know, Ross Duthat doing that, you know. Um, right. You don't see people in the National Review doing that. The, even the most intellectual conservatives don't do that. You don't see the Bernie people ever doing that. 
you don't see, you know, like, um, yeah, basically the only people who ever write, I guess I was wrong about this. Let's rethink this. Yes. Are normie libs in American society. It's not normie libness simply gets redefined to like stuff that people change their mind about and thus is more likely to be right. That's right. the secret. Okay. Um, Rant over. Anyway. That's a great line on which to wrap this up. That's my that's my key insight here. And observe conditions and change your mind. And hexapodia is the key insight. Yes. This has been Noah Smith and Brad DeLong's Hexapodia podcast. Thank you once again for listening. And, and goodbye. goodbye to one and all.